It's been a pleasure to uh, sing the praises of our glorious Creator together this morning. I want to open with a question this morning. Can nature reveal God? Can the cosmos lead us to the, to the divine? Some will remember that we've been interrupting, periodically interrupting our regular preaching series for some time now so we can preach through the Psalms a little. Um, <clears throat> unable to preach all 150 of the Psalms in a timely manner, we thought we could at least preach now and then drawing on different Psalms that represent different styles and themes that we find within the Psalms, what is uh, perhaps one of the longest books of the Bible. One thing that we will notice as we read through the book of Psalms, and indeed many parts of the Bible, is the frequent consideration of nature. This may surprise us at first. In part, I think that's because today we are, in the West, still heavily influenced by uh, one of the most influential Western philosophers to have ever lived, and that is Plato. And Plato taught that all that is material is bad and all that is spiritual is good. Of course, uh, Plato was a pagan. As Christians, we read that God created the world, and after he had finished creating, he saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Today we are going to look at Psalm 19, and I want us to look broadly at this psalm in its own right, but we're going to pay particular attention to how this and other scriptures relate to the created order. We're also going to take a, a fleeting glance at Psalm 29 as well. Let's pray. <clears throat> Mighty creator and sustainer, by your word you uphold all things. Creation declares your praises. Your word declares your very self. Help us to understand and appreciate and hold both in their place this morning. Draw our hearts evermore in praise to you, the creator of everything and everyone. Psalm 19 is perhaps one of the better-known psalms. It's uplifting, it's positive, it's poetic. From the opening exclamation of God's glory to the closing prayer of devotion, we find our hearts drawn to our creator as he has been revealed. We shall examine it in three parts this morning. Uh, first, we're going to examine the first six verses and consider... Uh, the voice of natural revelation, as it were. Second, we shall look at verses 7 through to 11 and consider specific revelation, the written word of God. Third, we shall consider uh, the psalmist's response in verses 12 through to 14. And finally then, we shall hopefully weave all three back together for some concluding thoughts. I want to ask, when was the last time that you paused to watch a sunset or, or lay under the night sky gazing at the stars above how do you feel when you, you gaze out from a high vantage point and you see the land stretch off in all directions? Or when you sit on the rocky headland and you see an army of waves marching slowly across the horizon? Can nature reveal God? <clears throat> I sat beside the patient's bedside. Doctor, he said, I have everything prepared. The funeral arrangements, the will, the financial affairs... Everything is in order, doctor. The 78-year-old had only been recently diagnosed with cancer, but he was very well aware of its poor prognosis. Mr. Blackburn, I said, not his real name, can I ask, what about your soul? 
Have you made preparation for your soul? He hadn't been anticipating such a question. It's not commonly asked. Uh, but he seemed pleased that I'd asked. And we sat and we chatted for a while. And he shared with me many things, but he shared with me the occasion in his life when he felt the closest to God was a time when he'd been hiking through Runnock Moor, apparently one of the greatest wilderness areas in Scotland. And there he'd found himself confronted by the beauty and power of nature. So can nature reveal God? Is his experience valid? How would you react to such a statement? And I think this is an important question. The psalm begins in verse 1, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And this important question has been answered differently by different influential teachers throughout church history, some of them directly pondering this very verse and, and asking the question, how do the heavens proclaim the glory and to whom? Historically, for about a thousand years, it doesn't seem that the Catholic Church paid too much attention to what has come to be termed natural revelation. Uh, for them, authority rested in two sources. Uh, firstly, the written word, that is, the Bible, and, and secondly, if I'm so bold to say it, perhaps more so importantly, in the canon bull, the authoritative teachings uh, laid down by the Catholic Church over time. The situation changes with Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century, who thought that there are certain truths that can be grasped from natural revelation, while others, uh, the Trinity, for example, require the special written revelation of God. 19th century German liberalism took this a few steps further uh, with a diminished view of Scripture, an alternative locus for spiritual authority had to be found, so much so that that 19th century liberalism hangs, uh, so I'm told, much on an evaluated form of natural theology. That's where they trace their theology back to, an attempt to understand God uh, from the created order, not so from his word. Coming out of this, then, we have Karl Barth. I'm going somewhere with all this. Karl uh, Barth was an educated German uh, gentleman. He, he was coming out of the school of German liberalism, and he came to reject such. He felt that God can only be revealed through Jesus, the incarnate word. He held scripture in higher regard than his liberal predecessors, but he did not consider Scripture itself to be the Word of God, merely to reveal the Word of God, which is Jesus. So though he comes out of liberalism and bestows a certain honour on the Bible, he never truly comes to a, a full appreciation of God's written Word. <clears throat> and from here we trace the beginnings of what has come to be termed as uh, neo-evangelicalism. Nevertheless, with, uh, I guess, the modest respect that Karl carried uh, for the Bible... <clears throat> he encounters a problem when he hits Psalm 19. Well, to be fair, he encounters many problems, but uh, he encounters a specific problem when he hits Psalm 19. So Bart says, apart from the incarnation of Jesus Christ, there is no revelation given from God to men. But Psalm 19 says in verse 2, day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. So Bart turns to verse 3. Aha, he says, there is no speech, there are no words, there whose voice is not heard. And he says, here, this proves my point. There is no revelation outside of the incarnation. The heavens, though they want to speak of God, they are mute. They can't. They're unintelligible. The point is null and void. I think whatever points Karl Barth thinks he scores here for creativity, I think he certainly loses for nearsightedness. 
because he demonstrates a failure to put this verse within its larger context. And, and I think that a mere child, as they read through the first six verses of this psalm, can see that they are joyful worship in response to what God has indeed revealed. In this context, uh, verse 3 is, is either poetically rejoicing at the power of this proclamation, even though in a technical sense it is inaudible, or if the alternate translation of the Hebrew is correct, and, and there's some debate, uh, the alternate translation going on something along the lines of, there is no speech, no language where their voice is not heard, such as the KGV will render it, well, then it serves as a poetic parallel to verse 4, which reads, their voice goes out through all the earth, their words to the end of the world. Either way, uh, the point of verses 1 to 6 is not that the heavens are gagged, but that the heavens effectually proclaim. So if the first translation of the Hebrew is correct, then this verse says, uh, serves to say, hey, this is amazing. Even though the skies have no vocal cords, yet they are singing the praise of God. A thought that is then further developed in verse 4, which talks about uh, how pervasive this proclamation is. If the second translation of the Hebrew is correct, then this verse serves to say, hey, this is amazing. The skies sing his praise and their proclamation is all pervasive. There is nowhere where their voice is not heard. And that thought is then picked up again in verse 4 for emphasis. It's been said that Coca-Cola has perhaps one of the most effective advertising campaigns uh, in the world, which I, I guess they'd want to have because they spend about $4 billion on it every year. They say that almost everyone on the face of the planet has seen Coke's logo. Can I say that that is nothing compared with God's advertising campaign? For God's advertising campaign has reached absolutely everyone, absolutely everyone on the face of the planet, without an exception. Coke might occupy the billboard that stretches the highway. God has stamped his logo on the billboard that stretches across the sky from east to west. And God's witness is so unremitting. If you step outside your front door at least once a day, or even look outside your window, well, then it reaches you every single day. I worked out that today I have been alive for 13,000 361 days and each day of my life God has made the display of his glory visible to me should I appreciate it. So circling back to, to liberalism and neo-evangelicalism, why does all this matter for us here today? We can ask ourselves who cares about the ivory towers of years gone by? I think it's important to identify the potential influences that some of us might bring to the scriptures, particularly scriptures like this one, as we seek to understand it. While we may not personally know the names of these theologians of yesterday, uh, they've left substantial influence within the church, beginning with, with Bart. <clears throat> While Bart was no evangelical, he proved to be one of the most prominent influences of the 19th century on evangelicalism. There was recently a book published, uh, actually entitled Karl Barth and American Evangelicalism. It's 400 pages long. There is a safety in dismissing natural revelation like Karl Barth did. Natural revelation lacks specificity, lacks authenticity. It's open to abuse, we can say. But to dismiss it is kind of a bit like throwing away your wristwatch so that no one steals it. And unfortunately, I've met those who would gag the natural revelation for fear that it might misspeak. Reformed evangelicals who say there is nothing that nature can reveal to us at all. 
While it might seem pious to, to follow Bart's example, seemingly elevating Jesus and the incarnation by denying any other form of revelation, in reality, this is biblically unnecessary. And Psalms like Psalm 19 and Psalm 29 that we'll look at in a bit uh, bring glory to Jesus, not by discounting nature, but by appreciating it and letting it direct us to worship him through whom all things were made. As Sam read earlier from Colossians, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So then the first six verses of this psalm celebrate that God has indeed revealed himself through the created order. We know this also from Romans 1. It reads, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, sorry, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him. Now, while we dismiss the narrow approach of Karl Barth and neo-evangelicalism on the one side, we also, I think, need to be very cautious to fight back and to push back against uh, the excess of modern liberalism. I think their error is, is of greater magnitude, both in its severity and I think potentially also in its prevalence in our day. See, liberalism, uh, that which Karl Barth reacted against, teaches that we can substantially or even wholly know God from nature and in the absence of his word. But without the written word, the natural revelation, <clears throat> sorry, but without the written word, the natural revelation is like a herald's blast of a trumpet, but there's no royal procession to follow. Our awe is aroused, but the king has not yet been revealed. Without the written word, natural revelation is kind of like a smoke alarm, but there is no fire exit. All creation groans. It tells us that there is a problem. But we do not know how to escape. So we need the written word. And so in Romans ten fourteen, how then can they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? The natural revelation is wholly insufficient to reveal Jesus, who alone can bring us to the Father. And so we're in vital need of the written revelation. Romans 1 talks of God revealing his eternal power and divine nature through creation. What it doesn't speak of? It doesn't speak of God revealing his saving grace or his plan of redemption through creation. For this we need, we must have, the specific revelation of God's written word. The natural revelation, when not guided by the beacons of Scripture, will never sail into the harbour of true faith, but will end up shipwrecked on the reefs of error. And so unfortunately, my patient, Mr Blackburn, a self-described spiritual man who happily discussed how he had made preparation for his soul, he told me that he had encountered God through nature. He told me that he was a, a Christian in his definition of such. He believed in the gospel of do unto others as you would have them do unto you, he told me. He believed that God 
is the good in everything. That's not actually Christianity. That's, that's pantheism. And had he read his Bible, he would have actually avoided this error. Even here in this psalm, where the natural revelation is considered and commended, from the very first verse, it's also kept in proportion. While we are led unmistakably to appreciate the natural revelation of the divine, the divine is seen to be other to the creation. And so we do not read, the heavens declare their own glory. Far less, the heavens declare their own divinity. But they speak of him who is above the heavens, of him who brought them into being. And their glory is but a crown that they will cast before his feet. So moving on from some of the pitfalls that we must avoid as we consider the beauty of the world about us that God has created, let's focus now uh, attention on how we should properly appreciate natural revelation. When you gaze at the stars or the sunset or the beautiful landscape, you feel that sense of wonder. And that is right because God has written beauty into his creation. You gaze, as it were, at the art gallery of God and though it's been tainted, though it's been, been vandalized by our sin, yet you can still see the brushstrokes of the master. And so creation inevitably leaves a sense of awe and appreciation. It leaves a mark on the soul. And through the guidance of Scripture, it leaves the right mark upon the soul. And that is important. It communicates concepts too expansive for human imagination. If you ask a mathematician to express infinity... Does anyone know the symbol? He will show you a figure eight kind of on its side. And he'll say, this is the symbol for infinity. You can keep tracing it around, on and on and on. It goes on forever. It seems somehow small, doesn't it? It communicates the concept, but it doesn't touch the grandeur. When God wants to express infinity, when he wants to tell us how much he loves us, he doesn't say, I love you this much. No, he says, go outside. He says, look at the stars. And the word of God says, for as far as the, sorry, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. And we, each one of us, can go outside and we can look up at the night sky. We can look at the handiwork of God that he's made available, that he's put on display freely for all to see. And suddenly we say, Wow. That is how much you love me. When we want to consider the sovereignty of God, let's consider the days. Day moves to day, night to night. Time marches on inevitably at the command of God. And so it has been and so it is and so it always will be until the day that God calls it to stop. And there is absolutely nothing, nothing in all the world, nothing that humanity, even if it works together, nothing that we can do to delay that march even for a second. Nothing will hold up the inevitable approach of eternity at God's command, and that is his sovereignty. And day to day passes and reminds us of such. When we want to consider the power of God, we could say that God is all-powerful. Those two words are an accurate descriptor. God is all-powerful. Unfortunately, we in our weakness, we struggle to comprehend, to even grasp the nth fraction of such power. And then we consider the sun that he has made. Day by day, our Father brings it forth, and we're so dependent on its warmth. We're so vulnerable to its temper. 
And we read, there is nothing hidden from its heat. When it is mild, we feel ice cold. And when it flares, the whole land seems to wilt beneath its rays. We consider the sun and we remember that this, this, this giant globe of fire is but one of the many stars that God has created and cast into the sky. It is nothing compared to the power of God. Each day he sustains each one of them. Isaiah forty twelve reads, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? And suddenly we get a picture of the grandeur of our God. We get a picture of what previously is unfathomable. One writer pens these words, He who would guess at divine sublimity should gaze upward into the starry vault. He who would imagine infinity must peer into the boundless expanse. He who desires to see divine wisdom should consider the balancing of the orbs. He who would know divine fidelity must mark the regularity of the planetary motions. And he who would attain some conceptions of divine power Greatness and majesty must estimate the forces of attraction, the magnitude of the fixed stars, and the brightness of the whole celestial train. So the heavens declare the glories of God, and in Scripture we know God, and we can appropriately attribute their praise. I want to illustrate this with an example. We had just finished Bible study for the night. For those of you who remember the Middletons, uh, we were in Grant's uh, front room at the time. Sort of a, an old Queenslander kind of house with those beautiful old Queenslander sort of windows. And we could see on the Bureau of Meteorology, on the radar, that there was a large storm sweeping in. Can I invite you to turn to Psalm 29 in your Bibles? I forgot to put this on the screen, sorry. So we could see a large storm sweeping in on the radar. I thought of Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. Here, the psalmist too, he sees a storm approaching. He sees God manifesting his power in the approaching storm. The storm is not God and God is not the storm. And that's called to attention by the repeated refrain, the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord. This isn't God. But this is God working his power in creation. Likely the storm uh, is coming in from the Mediterranean. God has formed it over the Mediterranean, over the many waters of verse 3. And then it's making landfall to the north of Israel in Lebanon, verse 5, where it starts smashing the cedars in pieces. Indeed, it makes the whole country skip like a calf or like a young wild ox. As we sat there in Grant's front room, the winds picked up. 
the windows of, of Grant's front room started to rattle. Outside, the branches of the trees started to thrash violently to and fro, and the storm was coming closer, and we could feel it. The Bible study was finished for the night, but we decided to open up the word again, and we read this psalm. We're going to pick up again in verse 7. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare, and in his temple all cry glory. What started as a storm over the Mediterranean makes landfall and then sweeps with great destructive power over the whole land of Israel from the north up in Lebanon. It sweeps down the whole land to the very south, to the wilderness of Kadesh. It makes Lebanon skip like a lamb and it shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. God is displaying his power in one of but many manifestations. Now, not all cry out in exclamation of glory. But in this psalm, we see that all who are in God's temple will. All who know and worship Yahweh, the creator, they cry out glory. And so too, we, that night, as we sat in Grant's front room, as the lightning flashed and the rain started to fall, in our hearts, we all cried out glory as we appreciated that God, the creator of the universe, continues to sustain the world by his mighty power. It is but a small manifestation of the work of God. The final two verses then remind us of the power of God and of our need to seek his favor. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. Again, over the flood. He isn't the flood. He is above creation. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give his people, strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. When we see nature, we are left in awe but ignorance. When we see nature through the word, then we are left in awe and worship because we know who is responsible for what we are seeing. We know who brings it to pass and we give our praise to God. We see beyond the storm to the God who called it forth. We see above the heavens to the hand that hung them in place and we worship our God. Uh, Returning now to Psalm 19. Again, I'll give you a second to, to flip to it. I really should get better with my slideshows. <clears throat> let's, um, let's read it again by way of refresher from verse 7 through to 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. While the psalmist formally glorified God for his natural revelation and how that beckons to his divine glory... The psalmist, David that is, now turns his attention with equal, if not more, appreciation to, God's, uh, to God for his written revelation, the word of God. <clears throat> David, the human author of this psalm, he didn't have a complete Bible, but David rejoiced in that which God had already provided. As David transitions to consider God's specific written revelation, you may have noticed a stark contrast in the difference of the form of this psalm. 
Firstly, uh, can you see that in the first six verses, David rejoices in how nature reveals God's character, but he is never drawn into directly praising nature. The created order came from God, and indeed God himself declares the original good, but we must remember that, yes, because of our sins, nature itself is now in a state of frustration. Not so God's written word. And so David rejoices in the fidelity of the written revelation. He rejoices in the fidelity of God's written word. It is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, enduring, true and righteous. That is high praise. The next startling thing is the pronouncement of five blessings. We saw earlier that natural revelation is insufficient in itself to bring us to the true knowledge of God. If you want, it can bring us from atheism to agnosticism, I guess. And I mean, even atheists like Richard Dawkins will talk about how, how nature pulls us towards the belief in a God. But it leads us to a frustrated agnosticism and ignorance. It doesn't take us to saving faith. <clears throat> Accordingly, the first of the blessing reads, blessings read, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. We see that the written revelation gives life. The word for reviving could also be translated uh, restoring or converting the soul. It carries the idea of turning. It carries the idea of repentance. And that is the effect of the word of God upon our life. And it's from this inflection point where the soul has been, uh, sorry, been affected by the direct encounter with God, discovered not in creation but in his word, from here we see the stream of blessing starts to flow. Conversion is not the end. Transformation is. As we immerse ourselves in the word, as we drink from it, we also drink wisdom and joy and enlightenment. Without the word of God, we drink nothing. I asked my patient, Mr. Blackburn, uh, something along the line of, have you always done to others as you would have them do to you? Admittedly now... <coughs> sorry. sorry. Admittedly, Mr. Blackburn had had some exposure to the scriptures. He knew that verse at least. Um, but a verse or two in isolation is not actually really exposure to... Uh, the word of God, particularly if the, the verses are taken out of context. He told me in response, he told me that he had never kicked a man when he was down. I thought that's a funny sort of definition of do unto others as you would have them do unto you. At this point, his, his wife thankfully jumped in to uh, give a slightly more positive account of how he had upheld that. I noted to him that we're all sinners and that we need forgiveness found only in Jesus. He agreed that he had done some things in his life that he, quote, wasn't proud of. But he assured me that they weren't very many. We need the written word to convert the soul. We need the written word to convict us of sin and to lead us to God. I asked him if he owned a Bible. He assured me that he did. His sister had apparently given him one many years ago, 
Uh, he could even identify where it sits with an eminent position on his bookshelf. The gentleman had a, an air of British aristocracy to him, and I kind of pictured a very old, leather-bound Bible, red cover, next to a very grand armchair. But I had to wonder if that Bible actually ever got read. I told him that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but through him. I asked if he could have his wife bring the Bible in so that he could read it. I had a quick disclaimer. I'm not normally uh, this apt at sharing the gospel at work, and I wish I was. I dropped into his room on a subsequent day. Uh, His Bible hadn't actually appeared yet, but I'd brought one for him. And when he saw it in my hands, he assured me, no, my wife is bringing my Bible in, perhaps today. And so I kept my Bible, which I now regret, and I left him with a printout on an A4 sheet of paper with some selected verses. The next day, day, his Bible still hadn't appeared, and he thanked me for the piece of paper, and he mentioned that he had time to uh, read it in part, he said. There were barely a dozen verses on that piece of paper. And that brings us to our next point. The Word of God is what this world needs. The Word of God is what this world desperately needs. It is the Word of God that imparts life and blessing. It is so amazing that we have access to it, but it is so peculiar what apathy we demonstrate towards it. I stand here myself personally convicted. The psalm goes on to say, More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Do we today, do we hold the word of God as sweeter than honey? We have so much capacity for pursuit. We have so much energy and time. We have so much that we devote to what captures our interests. I've noticed that we rarely pass by that which which grants us satisfaction. But I hear people say, I struggle to find time to read the word. My life is so busy, you know. I'd be too shy to admit it, but, but I have acted likewise. But then we ask ourselves about our pleasures. When I ask my friends talking about their pleasures, when I get my friends to talk about their pleasures, uh, they can talk quite well. They can talk at quite length. People build hobby mansions. They, they take a gap year and they travel over land and sea. They indulge in art or food or exercise. Money and time seem to be freely sacrificed at the altar of their sweet honey. And yet we say, I struggle to find time to read the word of God. It seems that God has not shortchanged us hours in the 24-hour day, but that often we have misspent the hours. Misspent them on, on that which we perceive to be as satisfying as honey, dripping from the comb. But all the while we neglect that which brings true satisfaction, that which is truly sweeter than honey. Do we hold the word of God as more precious than gold? I look at the men and women of this world. Gold was the currency of David's day. The dollar is the currency of our world. And I see people, and I see the lengths that they go to get it. Some rise early, some stay out late. Some take on a second job or take on extra overtime. Some forgo sleep. Some forgo holidays or pleasure. Some sign themselves up to three-year university degrees or longer and they during which time they they commit themselves almost to sort of voluntary poverty, all in the hope, all in the hope that one day they're going to get a better paid job and they're going to more effectively mine the gold mine of the dollar. 
And then I look at the men and women of the faith, and I ask, do we truly believe that God's word is to be desired more than gold? Do we seek it as though it was a precious metal? We own it, sure, but do we meditate upon its precepts until it brings us joy in the heart? Let us move now to the final three verses of the psalm. Again, I'll just read it by way of refresher. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. David has pondered the heavenly beings and the glory of God. David has considered God's law and his precepts, his commandments and fear and rule. Little wonder then it is that David, as he stands there humbled and convicted, he prays a prayer of confession. Before the weight of God's revelation, he has no confidence to say, Yes, I'm a sinner but not much, or I am mostly good, you know. I've never kicked a man when he is down. Faced with the righteous standards of God, he is convicted that he is a sinner. He is sinful to his core, and he's brought to a place where he calls out to God for forgiveness, not only for the sins that he is conscious of, but the many sins that he is unconscious of as well. Second, when he is confronted by the glory of God, he seeks to live in sin no more. And so the psalmist pleads, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Having pleaded forgiveness in verse 12, he now pleads for moral transformation in verse 13. Uh, The parallel parallelism of verses 12 and 13 suggests that the psalmist pleads forgiveness for his hidden faults in verse 12 it's implied that he also pleads forgiveness for the presumptuous sins in verse 13 and as the psalmist seeks to be kept back from committing presumptuous sins verse 13 he likewise seeks to be kept back from hidden faults note the fifth word of verse 13 keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins Then he closes with this beautiful prayer. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. May all that is outwardly evident as well as all that is inwardly there be acceptable to you. And he closes, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Language fails him to describe God's enduring, unchanging, firm refuge So he borrows an illustration from the natural revelation and he merely says, my rock, which aptly says what the theoretical adjectives I just listed cannot. But for the saving work of God, he draws from specific revelation, from the written word, and he says, my redeemer. The language is biblical language and it is biblical language without fitting parallel in the created order but it will only be fully appreciated with the coming of the Redeemer, Jesus, the very Son of God. So in this psalm, 
we begin with natural revelation. It glorifies God, but there is no independent blessing. It, in and of itself, is insufficient to bless us. But it speaks of a God who is there, who may be found. And where do we find him? Through the revelation of his word. And so we progress to the second part of the psalm. And we rejoice that God has revealed himself through his word. And the very first blessing we receive from his specific revelation is the reviving of our soul. Nature shouts out, There is a God! But it leads us only as far as this agnosticism. The Bible shouts out, Behold your God! And through the proclamation of God's specific revelation, we come to faith, and through faith, we are revived. We respond, seeking forgiveness and transformation. Avail yourself of the blessing of natural revelation. Look, see, appreciate, know your creator. Reject the Greek notion that all that is physical is bad. No, God has created it, and he has said that it is good. And while it is marred by sin, yet it remains and it speaks of the greater still, reminding us of the immeasurable, unfathomable qualities of its creator. Avail yourself, though, still more of the scriptures, the word of God. You've come to grasp the basic tenets of the faith through reading the scripture. Your eternity is secure. That's great. But the riches of God's word go beyond the broad brushstrokes of your salvation. And his word is filled with wisdom to an intricate level. And the study of his word will be as honey from the comb. Does your simpleness need to learn wisdom? Do your eyes need light? Your heart need cause to rejoice? It is there in the Bible. It is there in, his God, in God's word. And finally, respond to the revelation. We love to cast off restraint. We're Australians, right? We love to cast off restraint. Yet here we read that God's precepts bring rejoicing to the heart. And so the psalmist rejoices in restraint. And he cries out to God, keep your servant back. We pray that God will deliver us from evil, from temptation. Lead us not into sin. Join with me as we close in prayer.